welcome back to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton. This is the podcast where we open our minds to the experiences of others, all in the name of achieving good mental health. Right now, I am out and about in a beautiful setting. It's a sunny day. It's a lovely field. That might even be a couple of lambs over there, but I have very poor sight, so who knows? It could be pigeons. I'm actually out and about because I'm about to go to Russell Brand's house. That's for a future episode. So make sure you subscribe to Happy Place to get that as soon as it's released. Now, if you're new to podcasts, there's all sorts of free apps you can use to do that. I've given a few links on my website. So just head to officialferncotton.com forward slash happy place. But back to today's podcast, which is with former Vogue editor Alexandra Shulman and someone who I have so much respect and time for. If you need a motivating pep talk every now and then, Alexandra is the one to go to. I don't find it that easy to just give myself that time. But it's not so much because I'm worried about not doing things. It's that I'm worried about not getting things done. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now, here's the show. have worked in an industry well actually a couple of industries I guess really that are seen as very competitive and felt very competitive and also have had jobs that felt very all-consuming and I'm very interested in how one gets that work-life balance and regains sanity in really intense situations because it's something that I've definitely at times struggled with so today I'm going to go around someone's house. I'm very excited about this, slash completely shitting myself, who's a complete expert in this area, having been the editor of Vogue for 25 years. So let's go and knock on the rather gorgeous front door of Alexandra Shulman. Hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? Very well. You look lovely. Thank you. Is it take one Alexandra, thank you for inviting me into your beautiful house. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. Um, There's so many things that I want to ask you about. Obviously, being in your role that you were as the editor of Vogue, at the top of not only a magazine, but really uh, sort of the top of the food chain in a whole industry in the UK, that brings with it so much power and responsibility. Did you always sort of feel once you knew that you wanted to work in the editorial world, that you could be a leader or you had those attributes that could land you in a job like that? Um, Completely the opposite. Really? I never wanted to be a leader and I never thought of myself 
as it. If you ever talked to anyone that knew me as a child, they would say she's talking nonsense because, you know, as a kid, when you're like in the playground and you kind of divide into teams, I'd be like, OK, you're on that team and you're on that team and I'm all ahead of this team and whatever. But that is not the way I see myself. So when you were sort of climbing that food chain and you could see yourself succeeding in each role that you did and, and being moved up, did that feel very natural? Was it all sort of a bit of a surprise as, as that journey continued? I think when people talk about those kind of career journeys, it's rather like there is a kind of ladder and you go step by step and you go up, whereas in fact, it's not a kind of linear progression at Mm. all. And, you know, for me, there were quite a lot of sideways moves and there were definitely moments when I didn't enjoy it and things weren't working out and I was kind of questioning whether it was the right thing. Pretty early on, I was thinking my first job, well, second job was in the music business and I was the secretary in the A&R department. And I was clearly a square, very square peg in a round hole. You know, when I think back, I think it's quite interesting that I didn't try and be the person that the A&R department actually wanted me to be, which was something that would not be appropriate to, <laughs> to say in the podcast. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was much more rock and roll. And so obviously very early on, I mean, that was like my first job. I kind of stuck to my guns about what I was going to be rather than try to be something that I didn't feel comfortable with. I, at this point, at 36 and having worked for a long time, I feel like I know who I am. I'm very confident in being exactly as I want to be in any situation, whether it be music, fashion stuff, um, writing. I feel like I know my voice and I know what I'm about now. But, oh, my God, when I was a teenager and I was on TV or in my 20s, I definitely tried to be as malleable as possible and morph into what was needed. And I did not have that self-confidence. After getting sacked, did you not have a moment where you thought, oh, that maybe I should try and be more whatever? whatever. No, I didn't feel that. But I was miserable. Mm. I'd had two jobs within that industry and I thought that's what I wanted to do and I got fired for different reasons from both of them so I was beginning to think that this you know was not going to pan out I do remember being in floods of tears and my landlord taking me out for a vegetarian curry out the road actually because oddly enough I was renting a room in a house just about half a mile away from where I now live. Do you think if you are in a role and you um have felt like you're not matching up to what people assume you should be or how you should act. On your part, is there a sense of rebellion in just remaining as you are? Probably, yeah. I think quite stubborn mm. and a kind of determination to to be... I mean, that sounds like... I don't think I'm arrogant. I don't think it sounds arrogant at all. I think it's... I think no, but it's I'm thinking it's stubborn and No, I think stubborn and rebellious are probably traits that you really need to have if because it's harder to get that self-confidence and go sod you I don't care you sacked me I am as I am because everyone would be heartbroken but actually to have rebellion and determination they're two powerful forces to to push you on I think it can be arrogant you know definitely one has to be prepared to learn from you know I don't go in everywhere and I never went in everywhere thinking I'm brilliant and the way I am is you know you know, it's my way or the highway kind mm. of thing when I was somebody's secretary. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't like that. But to some extent, I guess the boundaries of what you can be and what, you know, and what you want 
are quite important to have at whatever stage of life you are. And, you know, in that particular instance, I mean, you're in A&R department, it's a very kind of social thing, you're out at gigs, you know, with bands, socialising, it's quite sort of late night and whatever. And actually, you know, I was never a really late night kind of party girl person. Amen to that. Um, You know, it was actually, you know, probably shouldn't have been in the job in the first place Mm. rather than, it wasn't that they were wrong. But there was a real moment. uh, I was working on Tatler in the 80s. My boss had really kind of wanted to fire me, basically. He was trying very, very hard to get me out. He didn't like me, didn't want me there. And That's I nice. was kind of at that moment where I was always in the loo in tears. Oh, um, God. But also sort of slightly stubbornly determined that I wasn't going to get pushed out. He asked me to do something that he thought was going to be kind of really difficult and I was going to kind of fall on my face. It was an interview with somebody. And I did it and I did it really well. And it literally was like the light was switched on suddenly and he went from one uh, one opinion of me to another. For me, that was a kind of a real transformation because that was the first time I'd really felt that I did something really well. That was sort of part of a, a career thing. And so I then started writing, actually, and I thought I'd be a writer, a journalist. And there was another kind of fork in the road where, in fact, I had to make a decision about whether to be an editor and not the journalist. And of course, with those tangents that you're going off on and different jobs that you're getting and increasing wage, there does come power. And certainly where you ended up as the editor of Vogue, a gargantuan amount of power. How did that feel? Is that authority and control and responsibility sort of incrementally grew over the years? Did you notice that shift of energy and and how did that make you feel? I've never felt that I had power. Power is not really something that I have ever thought about Mm. or felt that I had. Authority, yes. I think it was kind of organic. So I went to Vogue and I was at the top of a tree in an industry fashion that I'd never worked in. So that's quite a strange Mm. position that you've got to be in. And, you know, there were a lot of people around who were baffled by the fact that I was there And in some ways, no one more baffled than myself. But at the same time, I obviously had the confidence to to go for the job and to think that I could do it once I got it. And the authority, I think, came about over time. I mean, I didn't feel remotely um, worthy of having any authority for quite a long time. But by the time I left, I did. I kind of thought, yeah, I've done this for long enough. You've got to listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice place to be at. When you first started a job, because I've certainly had that feeling where, like when I joined Radio 1, and I knew roughly what I was doing, but I certainly wasn't anywhere near where some of the more longer-standing DJs had been. I had for quite a long time, and even sometimes towards the end of being there for 10 years, that horrible sense of imposter syndrome where you think... I'm blagging it and everyone can see it and I'm still doing it. And you do find that confidence somewhere to continue with what you're up to. But there is a sense that you're going to be found out and someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and go, get out. Did you experience that? I think everyone, really everybody suffers from imposter syndrome Mm. at some time or other, you know, whatever it might be that Mm. you're doing. And and that doesn't have to be about your career. It can be about, you know, bringing out your kids or whatever. So knowing that it's not the done thing to show your vulnerability, how do you then take risks and and continue in that way, blagging it, basically? I never pretended that I could do something that I couldn't do or 
be a kind of person that I wasn't. So, for instance, you know, as editor of Vogue, you know, everyone has a view of what an editor of Vogue is going to look like and be like. And I didn't ever try to be anything mm. about that that I wasn't comfortable mm. with because I knew that somewhere down the line that would trip me up. Yeah, you know, if yeah, I started yeah. to think that I was somebody who could be valued for the clothes that I was wearing, for instance, and my style, that was never going to kind of do that really successfully in a world where so many people are brilliant at it. So I kind of almost went the reverse way and Mm. didn't sort of try and engage with it that much. At times I've done that, absolutely, and I've gone against the grain or whatever, but at times I have tried to fit into something to look more confident. But but you you are in a very kind of exposed position and Mm. what you do, a lot of what you do professionally is, you know, really you are visually in front of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas the majority of what my job is was was sitting at a desk and trying to make things happen on a telephone or a laptop or in mm-hmm. meetings. But it wasn't, you know, I wasn't out there having to confront the world. Mm. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I guess in my job, one of the main things is you're supposed to most of the time appear popular or liked, which can sometimes feel like an impossible task. But I guess for your job, that matters less. It's more about respect and people respecting your decisions and what you're doing. How on earth do you start to build that portfolio of respect from so many people out there? Probably to start off with, you sort of have to respect yourself, maybe. Mm, mm. And possibly you have to trust yourself. I do think going with your gut instincts is often a good idea. But then some people have rubbish gut instincts. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not so good for them. I guess maybe time as well, just because over time people see what you've achieved and and respect that as well. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, to start off with, you know, people would say, oh, you're, you're not what I expected from the editor of Vogue. And I would just kind of smile and think, well, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> Um, But, you know, as time went on, I was just like, well, you know, that's kind of weird because I've been editor of Vogue for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years. They were still saying it when I'd done it for 25 years. Well, what is the editor of Vogue if it's not me? I've been there for 25 years doing it. So I began to feel more confident about feeling that and articulating that. Whereas I think to start with, I probably thought yeah, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, maybe I'm disappointing you. And when you're in a role like that, what is the overriding feeling? Is it of responsibility? Is it, does it feel like a burden at times? Or is it excitement that you know you can make great changes? Well, it's like all jobs, isn't it? It's the detail, you know, are you going to get that person to say yes to doing what you want? Are Mm -hmm. you going to get the photographer to deliver the picture that they don't want to deliver? Are you going to um, make the right decision in hiring somebody? And I didn't feel that a burden most of the time. Sometimes, the thing I find the hardest to deal with is I I find it very hard to be confrontational Mm. and I find it difficult if somebody's done a piece of work for me that I know they think is brilliant and I thought for some reason didn't work that was the kind of thing that would make me feel really sick was having to say that to them yeah I mean that is the absolute pits and I imagine you had to do that a fair bit over 25 years but I think a lot of people in my office would say oh Alex is really honest really straightforward you know she'll she'll tell you what she thinks but for me to tell people Mm. what I thought that really was was hard for me because I 
didn't want to I mean not some people I didn't care but <laughs> most people um some people it was quite enjoyable yeah, I should some imagine people it was quite enjoyable but it was you know much more enjoyable to say to somebody this is totally brilliant oh, just course. what we wanted you know? yeah that's a joy I think tough days were always to do with something that someone else had done not working out I mean for instance you know I never went on the shoots so I never went on the cover shoots or hardly ever there were times when I thought well you know if you'd been there then maybe you could have made this more what you know were you expecting them to mind read you and actually the only cover shoot that I really 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 like every detail I did was my last cover which was the September issue and I had this vision months before of what I wanted that cover to be and I was actually on that shoot but it was about the only one and it did turn out to be the cover that I wanted it to be but I was sort of kind of felt like I was just going to get in the way and be a kind of another person that was slightly hampering the creative process. But leading that back into your question, I think difficult days would be when I doubted that I had done the right thing and that my contribution had been the reason why this had gone wrong. And sometimes there'd be two or three of those things happened in a row. I mean, I'm a huge believer in like you get a really rubbish day. You know, somebody resigns, you don't want to leave. An expensive commission comes in wrong. But I do think that almost always two days later, everything will go right in the same measure. When I was reading your diary um, of the centenary year, which is a brilliant book, the thing that I guess I'd underestimated, and I'd assumed it to a certain extent, but I'd underestimated the the detail involved in creating even just one image from one shoot of the many you've got in a magazine is unbelievable. And the stress that that causes as well. How did you deal with that? And I guess also as a mother and a wife, you've got a different perspective to your home life and reality to a whole other world in fashion and a magazine that that you're the head of. How do you deal with that stress and also that bizarre shift of perspective that you're sort of oscillating between? Well, the centenary issue, which my diary was about, was particularly kind of detail-orientated because I was really engaged in what was going to go on in every portrait, for instance, and, and everything. I mean, most of the time... I would obviously be involved in who we were going to shoot, who was going to be the photographer, what the location was going to be. But there wasn't quite the degree of of my personal attention on every detail, yeah. which I kind of imposed on myself for that issue for whatever reason. But I think, if I'm honest, that I'm very good at compartmentalising and I was able to leave, apart from in that centenary year, yeah, yeah. the stress sort of on my office desk... And when I came home, I'd kind of disengage. That's remarkable. I don't know how to do that. I really don't know how to do yes, that. I'm, I'm wondering that. whether, you know, Sam and David, who I live with, whether they would um, <laughs> recognise that or not. But I also personally found, and I, I have one son, and uh, through a period of, of editing Vogue, I had Emma, my stepdaughter, who was 12 when she came to live with me. So I had sort of a 12-year-old and a newborn, as it were. So she was there for about 10 years. Uh, So there was a kind of a slightly bigger group to corral. But on the whole, I've I've found home be a relief, really, from from work, having that other thing to focus on. So I come back sort of 
walk in the front door. I remember when Sam was little, that moment of coming in was always this kind of strange combination of total joy and excitement about seeing him, which I always felt, combined with a kind of like, my head is still jangling Mm. with what's been going on. Mm. And what I wasn't very brilliant at was dealing with anybody else. I could deal with my child. Yeah. But some poor person living with me probably sort of got the brunt of like, just don't ask me now, you know, Mm. just wait. Yeah, I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard though, isn't it? Because you have to almost re-enter the atmosphere when you come out of one completely bonkers I find a bath an incredibly helpful thing. Like a quite physical Physical, wind down. Get into a bath, wash off the day and get redressed and you're you're the home person. Yeah, those sort of small rituals are quite important markers, I think, as well. And also a lot of the stress that, I was sort of feeling from reading the book was always to do with so many other people and so many intricate moments of of tiny bits of the day so it could be somebody's very late for a photo shoot it could be one photographer didn't deliver yeah. or one pair of boots didn't arrive yeah. like these teeny tiny bits that you're sort of out of control of and yes. you've got to be in control of this complete chaos I think one of the things I didn't like about my job was that an awful lot I was not in control of. Mm. And there is a kind of idea that if you're the editor, you have the ultimate control. But because you're actually not the man on the ground a lot of the time, you really don't. Mm. And, you know, you can do what you can to sort of try and ensure that what happens is what you think is going to happen. But so often it wasn't. And then you're dealing with... You know, sometimes something better would appear than what I had thought I wanted. And sometimes something, to my mind, completely unusable. And did somebody not hear me say that I really, really wanted them to be shot in the red dress? And why are they in a black tuxedo? Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you let go in those moments? Because I am a bit of a control freak in life. And when things don't happen how I visualised, I get very frustrated in those moments. Well, it... I think it would depend on my mood. If I was in quite a mellow mood, I'd just be... I thought I'd told you that I really wanted the red dress, but Mm -mm. it's okay. You know, she looks good in the black tuxedo. Yeah. And if I wasn't, I would be, you know, I don't understand why you didn't hear what I was saying. Mm. I would never scream and shout at people. I think maybe like once or twice in yeah. 25 years That's and right. always we'll one particular those. person <laughs> <laughs> I think you're allowed that in 25 years Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs Learn more at UH1.com In your centenary issue, where you did the beautiful shot with the Duchess of Cambridge, and you had that beautiful, exciting day where you went to the countryside and you described in such detail all these beautiful scenes and moments. Mm. What I found astounding was that you were actually able to, like on your wedding day, sort of stand back and take stock of what was going on and you you didn't get too sort of wound up in the stress of it and the excitement. Yeah, but you see, I wasn't doing anything that day, really. But you still feel responsible because it's such a huge deal what you're doing. Well, I did feel responsible. Yeah, very responsible. And, you know, I knew it was kind of a shoot that was one of the most important things that I would have done in the time I was at Vogue. 
But Lucinda Chambers, who was the fashion director, you know, she was doing a really great job. And so the Duchess was feeling quite comfortable. And I could kind of see it was going all right. And I guess because I was going to write a piece about it, and that's the lovely thing about being a writer, is that if you're going to write something, or anyway, I feel if I'm going to write something, it is a wonderful way that you can remove yourself because you become the observer. Yeah. So I felt I was justified in being the observer and kind of looking at the pink skies and the birds Mm. that were flying around and kind of listening to what people were saying. And I've always thought that when when I've had something to do that is difficult for me to do, if I can write a piece about it or write about it, that's really helped me because Mm. it does, it it puts you at a remove Mm. somehow. Mm. So I think that helped. And I guess, I mean, obviously you've gone on to write novels and and other books, Um, a very cathartic process too, away from something that is about money and sales and delegating, to have that sort of freedom and escape. Yeah, well, the um, the Inside Vogue diary was partially a way that I devised that I thought I would be able to to diffuse some of the tension around mm. the centenary because there were a lot of expectations. You know, I'd been there for a long time, but a hundred years was a very big deal for the magazine, and there's kind of the talk about it had started about three years before. Yeah. So by the time we were kind of getting into it, I was like. Mm there are going to be a lot of people wanting me to make sure that this works for the magazine. Mm. And by deciding to publish a diary of the event, of the whole thing, I knew that that would help me deal with the stress because I could write down everything about it. Yeah. And I could have done that anyway without publishing it. Yeah. Anyone can write a diary. But the point is, if I don't publish it, I don't write it. I can only write if I know that somebody else is going to read it, which is a bit tragic. I mean, I wonder that sometimes about myself like why do I do a job that is so visual and why do I do a job where I feel I need other people to experience it or recognize mm. it have you ever what, sort of what, taken what, that what, in- what do what's your answer I think well I think when I was younger it started off being very much about having a lack of confidence in social situations and feeling like I didn't know what my voice was or or how to have one. Oh, and I'm really? still finding my feet now with it, but I wanted to sort of almost dare myself to so get into that space. So by doing something for you, by doing something that you found difficult, consciously doing it, that kind of helped you confront that particular yeah, demon. Yeah, very subconsciously, but mm. now much more consciously. Right. And I put myself in situations where I know I'm pushing my own boundaries and it's a bit of an addiction to sort of do that. And I wonder if you have anything on a on a similar level with with being the head of a team, because it is a huge responsibility and you could have an easier life and you could have thought, I'm going to be a writer and go and live in a cottage by the sea and do that. But you didn't. You You went down that path. I think there was a very practical reason for that, which was that I was well paid to edit Mm. a magazine and run a team in a way that I might well not have been as a writer unless I was a very successful writer. And I had always been the breadwinner. Mm. And everything that I had and everything depended on me earning that money. So at the times when I was tempted, which there were many to think, you know, give it up and go and do something kind of smaller, be able to make more soup, you know, this, that Mm. and the other, I'd think, yeah, you know, and you know, not be able to have all the things that I've got or, you know, support the people that I supported and everything. So I think I 
that was a hugely motivating factor. I think there were times if somebody else had been able to kind of pay the mortgage, it could have been a different story. Do you think? Definitely. So that role and title wasn't anything that you felt you needed to feel better about yourself or to feel more complete? Because if I'm absolutely honest, some of the time when I do a good job at work, it will 100% make me feel better about myself. And you know what, I can wipe out some of those demons because that went well or whatever. I know it doesn't work, but that transaction isn't real. But for a moment, I can go, I succeeded in that. So I'm, I feel better about all the other shit over here that I'm panicked about or worried about within my own little head. Because I, at one point, was a Radio 1 DJ, and that meant something within an industry. I could do certain things that I can't do now. I'm not too bereft about it. But the title, at times, did feel quite nice and acted as a bit of a buffer to a lot of shit I didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have that sense of, of what that title meant to you as Alexandra? Not in any meaningful way, mm. no. I mean, the only... I mean, a couple of kind of very kind of light things, like somebody would say, well, you know, what do you do? And you'd be able to say, well, I'm editor of Vogue. And that was like, you know, kind of say, (laughs) okay, we know what she does. And actually now it's fascinating. You know, now I'm like, when people say, what do you do? I'm like, well, I don't know. What do I do? Mm. So now when somebody does ask you what you do, I'm the same. I don't know what the answer is anymore because I do lots of bits and bobs that I love. And I enjoy what I do now possibly even more than I did when I had a title or a role that was very boxed in. But I do sometimes squirm when I'm asked, or if I'm abroad and people have no idea what I do, and I have to try and explain, and it sounds perhaps lesser than what I feel I'm doing because it doesn't have that title. Yeah. I how, think that's how is that's, that I think that's right. Well, it's new for me mm. to feel that. A very long time ago when I was working on... Tatler, uh, the journalist Craig Brown did this piece and it was called The Projectiles and it was all about, it was in the 80s and it was all, everyone had a kind of project that they were trying to pull off and it was quite a kind of sneery piece about all these people trying to pull off various kind of projects and not, not very nice piece anyway but I've always remembered the phrase The Projectiles and you know I feel a bit like I sound like mm. I'm a projectile <laughs> now and it's like oh yeah yeah sure that's gonna happen (laughs) isn't it so maybe at the moment I kind of just kind of say oh I'm just figuring out what I what I'm gonna do it's not actually the truth I am doing lots of different things but even talking about it here it sounds like that so is there is the sense um of liberation greater than the sense of fear at this point oh my god the sense of liberation is trumps fear by I can't even quantify it so much I don't feel fearful but I have to say at the same time my body came out and god knows what and I got these kind of my like all around my eyes my skin went all like I looked like a very very old kind of 190 year old woman with you know my skin had all gone kind of flaky and red around my eyes so although I was feeling this wonderful sense of liberation obviously something terrible (laughs) was happening in my body you were shedding a skin that you didn't need shedding a skin yeah (laughs) How does that itch start when you have a feeling that you know you've got a great job, you know you love your job, but there's something else over here that you haven't explored? How does that start and how do you know to go with that gut instinct? It's when you know that what you want to do is a positive, Mm. not that you're acting because you don't want to do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not coming from a place of anger or irritation. Or escape, actually. Or escape, yeah. 
Because I'm imagining some people that will be listening to this might feel not necessarily stuck, but like change is needed or there is something else in all varying degrees of life. Sometimes it feels easier to hold on to something really tightly for dear life out of fear. And that's, I guess, the other side of the coin is is going, I know that I want to go over here, but I'm too scared because I might lose everything. So I'm just going to stay in it. Yeah. And that's quite a tricky thing to navigate. And I've been there myself where more with jobs than anything and sometimes relationships previously where I've just been too scared that there's nothing outside of where I'm at now. And again, having the courage and conviction to still jump into the unknown and jump into the abyss. It's it's a tricky one. It's very tricky. I do know that the times I've been the most miserable in my life have been the times when I felt I was stuck in something Mm. that I couldn't get out of first time in my life that was when I was at university and I really hated being at university and I was persuaded by my family you know that it was not a good idea to give up my degree but actually it made me quite ill and I think now I think you know would I have been better to actually to leave and go and do what I wanted to do which was to sort of get a job somewhere and I and I still think probably actually Mm, that mm. probably would have been would have been for me the right thing to do. So I think feeling trapped is is one of the the worst things. But there's a kind of fine line between being trapped and actually committed, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you feel different as a person in any way since leaving? I think I probably do feel more relaxed. Um, I can kind of feel, you know, that thing when you kind of like, you're... You're really rushing all the time from yeah. kind of meeting to meeting. And you can kind of feel it in the frown mm. here somewhere mm. on your mm. forehead. Yeah. And what I haven't had, there were many, many days at work where I was like, must remember to breathe, literally, yes. you know, that you had no time not to do deep breaths, but literally you'd realise that you were mm. tense. I think I feel happier. That's really lovely. Do you think that's due to having more time just to be rather than constantly doing and on the go and looking ahead? No, it's more time to be doing things that I'm actually doing as opposed to overseeing what other people do. Mm. Just somehow to be able to like be in charge of your own diary. Okay, yeah, I am kind of making mistakes because I haven't yet worked out quite how to combine a print diary that I like to carry a print diary and my iPhone diary and so things are in one and not the other but I actually like the fact that I'm sitting there and saying okay so I've said I'll be 10 o'clock there which means I can be probably by half past 11 x and then yeah I could go and see that gallery in between Ooh. and whatever and that for me is a positive pleasure one thing that I find and I definitely discovered about myself after leaving radio so I was there for 10 years similar to you had to be at a certain place every day and had a certain amount of things to do before the time ran out and then when I left there was definitely a sense of freedom but also I had and still do at times have a sense of fear around stopping like what happens if I just don't have anything planned at all and I've always managed to kind of create things I want to do find little corners that I can potter around in that feel creative and that they're going to go somewhere or do something but there is a fear of absolutely stopping and 
and I sometimes try and sit with it and think, is it because I'm scared of what thoughts might crop up? Is it, is it because I'll have to sit and really think about all the things I don't want to that I may have done or regrets or whatever? I'm not sure what it is, but there is definitely a fear of not doing. And I like creating as well, so there's a fear of not doing that. Have you had that sense that you need that momentum to continue in whatever it is that you're doing? Well, Fern, I think you are much more driven than me. Um, really? Yes. The other day, for instance, we went to a wedding. It was a, my goddaughter's wedding and it was at lunchtime and it was kind of like in a church and then there was a toast and then there was a party in the evening. So we came back and it was about like one thirty or something or other. And there was the whole afternoon to kill before the party. And I was kind of saying oh, to David, oh... I really ought to write that piece that I'm meant to be writing and I'm wondering whether I should go and get the Christmas tree and, you know, I've got to get the Christmas cards done and this, that and the other. And he was like, can't you just relax? Can't Mm. you just not do anything, you know, for a few hours in the afternoon? It's Saturday afternoon. And actually I thought, yeah, good idea. And I just went into bed Mm. and sat and read a book and had a lovely afternoon. Mm. Um, So... Probably like you, I don't find it that easy to just give myself that time. But it's not so much because I'm worried about not doing things. It's that I'm worried about not getting things done, which is different. Oh, definitely. So I'm not finding things to do Mm. in order to fill my time. But I spoke to somebody the other day, uh, another person in my business who was leaving. And I said, what are you really worried about? And they said... Well, I'm really worried about what am I going to do when I when I stop? How will I deal with stopping? I'm so used to being so busy and speeding and working and having my kids all the time and everything. And how am I going to adapt to that? And I didn't really recognise that mm. as an issue. That's amazing because I've since having children, especially, and I've got stepchildren as well, slowed right down with my pace. But the need to do is omnipresent. There is no way I could just be. And I I know that that's a negative thing. Can you never, can you never just be? I have to do things like yoga or reading, I count as still doing, but in a much more stagnant way. So I can, I've got tricks that I'll use that allow me to do, but really I am also being. But to just sort of slob around or not have a plan or, or just to sort of drift or whatever, I find it really, really difficult. Don't you find something like Netflix helps? I do. I can spend hours watching television like that. I'm too much of a fidget. I And I need... I just have to find these little loopholes that allow me to still do something, basically. Or I, have a walk or something. I think that you... I worked this out when I left, actually, is that you do need to feel every day that you've that there has been an achievement yes. of some kind. But that achievement, for me, can be that I actually got myself out in the morning to run. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if yeah. I'd done that, then I feel like the day has started and I have achieved something. It doesn't terribly matter if nothing else happens. I mean, it's a bonus if it does, because it would be better to do something. Or it can be cooking dinner. I'm definitely the same. Even if I bake a cake, I feel like achieved something. Yeah. Tick. And that but is but, a feeling, a good feeling. But you talk about it slightly as if that's a negative, not mm. that it's just a purely good thing, whereas I think that's a good thing. No, I guess it is. I think I, because I know that there's a fear that is... Lurking behind lurking it. Lurking there about stopping, that that's the issue. But, 
But equally, I'm quite cool with it because I, I'm enjoying what I'm doing anyway, so it's fine. This has turned into a therapy session where Alex teaches me all the things <laughs> about life I need to know. Well, look, Alex, it's been such a, a joy talking to you and so interesting to really sort of understand what that process was like for you and and how it felt as well because I've kind of watched from afar and and I've always been a big fan of Vogue and and how you've run things and also very much admired your decision to have a new chapter that's actually something I wanted to ask you quickly was how important do you think chapters are in life because for me I think it's integral that we do try and have sort of bookmarks and then and then move on to something new or different or or a sense of something new well I did the same job for 25 years so that was incredibly long chapter Mm. it was kind of like a trilogy more than Mm. a chapter you need to look in the round at what your life is at various periods I mean I was able to make this change because my son is 22 I'm 60 it would be a very different prospect if I was 42 Mm. and I hadn't spent as long doing it and I had a 10 year old child Mm. so I think you know circumstances are incredibly important in your mm. decisions to to move on and, and change your life. Mm. And I think sometimes what happens is one feels desperate about something and you want to make the change. But actually, if you look around at the rest of your existence, that change is not going to make sense. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit of an alchemy between your gut instinct, but also practicality, yeah. isn't it, I guess, really? Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much, Alex. It's Thanks. been um, so lovely talking to you. Thank you, amazing Alexandra, for your words of wisdom. I love that woman. Next week, we'll hear from the host of one of my favourite radio shows ever, Desert Island Discs. That's right, Kirsty Young will be telling us about her happy place. Until then, please rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you're unsure of how any of that works, just head to my own site, officialferncotton.com slash happyplace, and we'll show you how. Thanks to Alexandra, thanks to the producer, Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and of course to you lovely people for listening. I'll see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.